Welcome to The Private Project. Welcome back, everyone. The following is an interview with Chris Knossen, a junior fellow at the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They graduated with an MS in textile conservation from the Winneter University of Delaware program in art conservation in 2022. They have interned at the Indianapolis Museum of Art at Newfields, where they assisted in the preparation and completed treatment for the 2022 Stephen Spruce Collection. Prior to that, they interned at the St. Louis Museum of Art, where they performed research on the use of digitally printed reproduction textiles as visual compensation in collaboration with Associate Textile Conservator Miriam Murphy. Pre-program, Chris interned at Toledo Museum of Art, Mountain State's Art Conservation, and the Maryland Center for History and Culture, previously the Maryland Historical Society. Chris has a deep passion for the ethics surrounding documentation and conservation, especially of modern materials and art. In their free time, they knit, read fantasy, and befriend stray cats. In this episode, we discuss Chris's pre-program experience, tips for applying to graduate school, how Chris tailored their time in the Woodpack program to prepare for private practice, their vision of their future business, and some ethics in costume conservation. This conversation will be of special interest to pre-program professionals and those interested in textile conservation. And now, here's my interview with Chris Knossen. Welcome to The Private Project, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for asking me on. It's actually kind of an honor. My pleasure. Let's start with your background. Can we go back to how you discovered the field of conservation? I love this. It, everyone has an origin story. Um, mine was during undergrad. It was junior year. My undergrad was Vassar College. I took a science and art seminar where a bunch of chemistry nerds and art history majors came together and I just really loved the whole class that I learned about conservation. I think the main thing for me was I was getting an art history degree. I loved art, but I really did not love what I was doing. And so finding another way to deal with art in a way that, that I really liked it was kind of how I got started. Mm. So you discovered it in Vassar College. And then where did you go from there? Can you describe your pre-program experience? Yes, thank you. Good question. These are very important questions. So I started getting my prerequisites during undergrad, but that was only one year. So I had to pick up a few classes outside of undergrad. I got my first pre-program internship at the Maryland Historical Society. They have a fashion archive internship. And then I was also taking chemistry classes, trying to make things work. Then I applied for an internship at the Mountain States Art Conservation with Paulette Reading, who does textile conservation in Denver, and Judith Greenfield and Cynthia Lawrence. So I, I got a lot of really great experience with them. All of that was in private practice. And each one of them were excellent mentors. From there, I got an internship at the Toledo Museum of Art. And from there, I finally got into grad school. But that entire time was four years. That's a lot, but it, I had to go home 
at some point uh, and lived with my parents while I had foot surgery and was totally fine. But even during that, I was taking a paintings course because that was the thing that was local. My parents are from West Michigan near Grand Rapids. Um, so going home meant leaving the journey of conservation. I had to move every time I wanted to do something with conservation. Can you talk also a little bit about what type of work were you doing at those internships? Also excellent question. So the Maryland Historical Society, which I cannot remember what they are now called, but there we were rehousing their entire costume collection, which was huge. But that internship was strictly just for rehousing the costume collection that they have. And when I say costume, it's an academic term meaning garments, uh, normally historic garments. So we were moving it all to this new storage um, facility that they have. But during that was an excellent time to unbox, condition assess, and vacuum everything, which is kind of a baseline conservation preventive practice, especially with textiles. I think I probably touched like 200 garments during that time. It was three months. Um, it was paid. It was a small stipend. It was not a living stipend, but um, they were able to get some funding for that. That was a little bit hard because that was in Baltimore. So I had to move to this internship that didn't really pay. And that's that's something that I, I want to see more changes happen with conservation. How do we get that first experience, that foot in the door in a way that is accessible? And I think there are quite a few changes since I started, but that was that was really hard. From there, I went back home to make some money. I was working at a factory. Anytime I go back home, I'm working at a factory to make money. I'm constantly trying to make money. And that's how I saved money to, to go to the internship, right? So then from there, I got the private practice with Paulette Reading was paid. Um, it was not full time. It was 30 hours, but she was very flexible with me getting another job. Um, so while I was there, the internship was initially six months and I nannied on the side to make things work. This was in Denver. So kind of expensive, but I was able to find something that worked. I ended up staying longer to work with Judy Greenfield and Cindy Lawrence. I also picked up a part-time job as a receptionist at a chiropractor's office. So there were times when I actually had four jobs. Some of them weren't paid at the time. Uh, for Paulette, I ended up moving into a kind of more of a contractor job where I was working on one specific project and I got paid at the end, but that meant going three months without getting paid. So the chiropractor job filled in the, the middle bits and then nannying made it so that I could actually live, not just survive. That was a really hard time, um, very lonely. It was about a year and a half. I loved everyone who was in my life at that time very dearly, especially the, the children I was nannying for, but that's not something you can reproduce very easily. That kind of just happened. It's also something I think about, like there were times that I was so broke that if I didn't have family, um, that I could, you know, get a $150 train ticket back to, I would have end up, ended up unhoused. And that's really scary. Uh, and the fact that I had to put myself in those positions in order to get into conservation was kind of scary. I was well enough of health and young enough that it felt like the right decision for me, but I'm really glad to see that that we're making changes away from putting pre-programmed conservators in those kinds of positions. So for that work, I really got to do a bit of everything. Uh, in private practice with Paulette Reading, there was a lot of mounting, ditch repairs, 
she had really great ethical conversations. That was such a good experience for me to, to be part of. Then the next thing I got was Toledo Museum of Art. This was after surgery. Mind you, I'm home. I have surgery. I go back to the factory to make money. Toledo Museum of Art, I got an outdoor sculpture internship working with Suzanne Hargrove. Um, outdoor sculpture internships are the best pre-program experience. They are so much fun. At least at Toledo Museum of Art, you get to do some wild things. You're like, torch in one hand and you're you're melting wax on a bronze statue and at some point you can like feel what you're doing as long as you're careful going into it and it might take you a bit of time to get comfortable and used to it but at some point you can like feel when the bronze is ready to be waxed I love outdoor sculpture and I loved that experience from there I was hired to continue working at the Toledo Museum of Art updating their emergency uh, procedures Great preventive experience. So it wasn't hands-on, but it was really great experience. Thank you for talking honestly about your pre-program experience. Sometimes, I don't want to say there's a shame to it, but people don't always want to talk about these non-conservation part-time jobs that they've had because they're trying to focus on things that are directly re related to conservation. Don't really want to talk about when you know you had to move three times and there wasn't a lot of money and you were taking these low paying or unpaid jobs, but also having to do this on the side to make ends meet. And I think that is very difficult. And mm. I think our field has improved a little bit. Um, but I think that's a very real aspect of some people's experience trying to get into the field. Thank you for being honest about that. Yeah, thank you for that feedback. I also still include all of those jobs on my resume. Um, because I and I write in there that I was doing it while doing conservation. Um, because I think that's really important to know. I also think it helps me as a conservator, mm. right? Like I can work some really tedious factory jobs and I can also talk to people as a receptionist. Exactly. Like you said, communication skills, that's essential. Even if you want to run a business, even if you want to work in a museum, communication is an important aspect of anyone's job. So we've dived into your pre-program experience. Can you describe your experience in applying to graduate school? Yes. So I learned about conservation from non-conservators. I did not have a mentor until Paulette Reading. At the Maryland Historical Society, the registrar was in charge of the internship at the time, and she was an excellent and probably continues to be an excellent collection manager and preservation holistic thinker. Uh, but was not a conservator. I applied to graduate school straight out of undergrad. I'm also first generation college. Um, no one else in my family has gone to or graduated from college. Um, so the process is a bit unknown and opaque to people who don't have parents who have gone through that. I was under the belief that I could apply if I didn't have all of the prerequisites because that is somewhat a normal experience, especially in the STEM field. However, that is not normally in conservation. So I applied my first year out. When I got Paulette Reading as a mentor, she suggested that I wait a year. Um, so I did not apply until 2017 for 2018. And then I applied 2018 for 2019. And that's when I got in. So it, I applied three times, got in on my third try. It's hard to explain. It feels like an enigma. Who gets in, when, how, why? I don't think any of it has to do with your skill level. At some point, we all are incredibly 
prepared for graduate school. And I have no idea what the tipping factor is other than they just can't let everyone in. I don't think anyone's better than anyone else. I don't know if it has to do with personalities. It's incredibly stressful. It is heart-wrenching. It is tear-jerking. It is so, so hard to pick yourself back up every single time. The thing that I really learned was mostly about myself. When is my line with conservation? When am I willing to draw it? How far am I allowing this relationship to take me? In the end, it is my choice. Yeah, it's not great, but there are circumstances I don't have any control over. The things I have control over is where I draw my line and how I pick myself up when when they say no. Those were really great life lessons that I'm really glad I got to learn in a non-interpersonal relationship scenario, but it's such a weird lesson to learn in a non-interpersonal relationship scenario where you're like, I can't ask this person what went wrong because they don't know. Right. Yeah. The process is, it's very unique. I feel like it's so competitive. It's so niche in looking for advice when you're trying to pick yourself up personally, Mm -hmm. I feel like other people's experience in in different fields doesn't quite match up. So it's almost very isolating, right? Because there's this very unique thing that's happening to you. And if you don't have people who have also gone through that, it can be very difficult. You think, when do you draw this line? Like how many times am I willing to stay at an internship that maybe doesn't pay very much and work multiple jobs. Like how long can I sustain this? How long can I be away from my family? There's all these deciding factors and it can get very stressful and very intense very quickly. Um, So that being said, do you have any advice for future applicants, especially those who have gone through the rejection process or maybe will go through the rejection process? One, throw out the word failure because you're not a failure. We are constantly learning. We are constantly improving as human beings. It's something that I love and I think that we should talk more about instead of this concept of failure. So when you get that inevitable now, when you apply to 30 internships in a summer and get two interviews and maybe one of them says yes, it is absolutely not because you're a failure. And it is so hard not to compare yourself to other people. So I'm not gonna tell you not to do that. But you do need to focus on you and your strengths and what you bring and what you have and find integrity in that and hold yourself up with that because the word failure will not hold you up and it doesn't actually matter. It's just tearing you down because no one's thinking that word except you. And then the other thing I would suggest, and maybe this is just an incredibly privileged thing for me to say and, and no one wants to hear this, but have fun. Conservation is probably going to kick you a few times. And if you're not having fun some of the time, it's no longer worth it. So find ways to have fun. Like when I was a nanny, I ended up staying with one family specifically, even though I could have made more money working with other families because I loved those kids. So making decisions that are best for you not necessarily best for the scenario, if you can, again, incredibly privileged place to be to make those decisions. But if you can get to that place, make decisions that are for you because you're going to be here for a while. Absolutely. It is going to be difficult. Maybe it'll be a slow burn to getting into graduate school. But if you can, like you said, it's very important to take time for yourself. Make sure the way you're living is sustainable if you can make it that way and make sure 
yeah, that you do love some part of conservation, hopefully, because there's a lot of stress that you can undergo to be in a field where maybe you're not completely happy. That's a lot. That's a lot on a person. Absolutely. Exactly. So after applying, you're now into graduate school. Yes. Can you describe that experience and how did you decide that you wanted to pursue textile conservation? You get into grad school, your first year, you're literally in class for eight hours a day and then you do homework afterwards. COVID hit right at the end. So that was a that was a little bit of a different experience. And we didn't know that you can't be on Zoom for eight hours at that point. So we tried being on Zoom for eight hours and oh man, were we all burnt out. So I have so much respect for for Woodpack for being so flexible and willing to work around things. And I, I still think I got a lot out of first year, but I'm not sure my first year was <clears throat> the typical one. Second year, a little more, more normal. Oh, but I picked textiles before. So you, you choose your major before that. And I chose textiles. So yeah, that was that. Second year um, is more project-based at Woodpack. And so I, I worked on the projects that I discussed with Laura Mina. Um, we also went through a private practice seminar as a class during our second year, which I found incredibly informative. This is where I learned things like you have to get insurance, but there are limitations to the insurance and what insurance can cover for legal reasons, but also financial reasons. You can't necessarily cover your own mistakes. It's too expensive. So that might be something that you write into a contract or you explain, you know, going about those things, but talking to an insurance agent and also knowing good insurers and things like that, that'll work with conservators. Uh, another good tip that I learned, there's a lot of contracts that exist in the world. And I think CIPP has a few as well that you can tailor to what you want and then buy a lawyer for an hour to look at them. Don't buy a lawyer to, to uh, draft the contract with you. Um, and that's much cheaper. So by second year, I had decided that I was going to go into private practice. I was absolutely positive. A big motivating factor was the civil justice movement that was happening. You know, there were, there were too many things I couldn't choose. I couldn't choose where I was going to live and do what I wanted and work in a museum and choose the museum's mission. I didn't like that I wouldn't have control over that. I felt very uncomfortable having so many of my life decisions be dictated by museums. I just decided, you know, I'd rather have control over my private practice and make those decisions for me and work with the museums that I felt comfortable working with. I communicated with my supervisor that that's what I wanted. There were options for me to work with private practice conservators during our summer internships. Instead, I worked with museums that may become partners in the future. Because if, if there's a textile conservator working at a museum, people in the private world uh, might call them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that textile conservator has the time to work on stuff. Um, so these were really good networking connections to make. I also chose mentors that would be strong mentors for me. I, I found that that if I liked a mentor, I would enjoy the work more than if I was specifically working on a project. For my second summer, I chose St. Louis Art Museum and Miriam Murphy, who's an incredible mentor, also started in private practice. Then I moved to uh, Indianapolis Museum of Art at Newfields, where I worked under Amanda Holden, who was an incredible mentor. Uh, she also, you know, sends work out to people 
in the Midwest. So that's my school <laughs> experience. And thinking about private practice while in school, I think that was really important. I know a lot of people who were thinking about private practice as like, a, I don't want to cross this off the list, but I, uh, I'm not necessarily going there. I think it's important to start thinking about it early if you think that it's a, if it's a possibility. So we've gone through the Winter program. You've had excellent internships with great mentors, and you've also had the opportunity to work in an institutional and a private practice setting. I wanted to do a quick compare and contrast of the type of work that institutions do versus private practice, what's similar and what's different between those two settings. Such a good question. In my experience, if you're working in the museum and you have a degree in conservation, it is very likely that you will end up doing administrative work whether or not you want to. Bench work is kind of increasingly becoming the work of technicians, interns, and fellows. So doing administrative things, but also thinking collection-wide. So you might consider, oh, we should get a grant to do a survey on this collection because it hasn't been seen, or we don't know what's there, or a curator is interested in it. You know, there's a lot of condition assessing. It's exhibition-based, it's loan-based, it's acquisition-based. It's not necessarily what you want to do. And then treatment, you probably won't have a lot of time for treatment because a lot of textile conservators end up being alone in their lab. They'll work with curators to choose objects that don't need a lot of treatment in order to go up. You know, you might have something that you're working on, but it's a long-term thing, or you have a fellow come in and do it. In private practice, you kind of do exactly the same thing, but the administrative work is for your business. Uh, if you're doing collection surveys, you're getting paid to do collection surveys. And then there's bench work. And that you could be working with a museum for all of that. You can also work with private clients. I think that's something to really think about and consider. The advice that I was given during the private practice seminar my second year was that when financial strains happen, museum funds dry up, but private clients still have money. In fact, they might be spending more time at home with their things or retiring early with their things. And they might actually do more conservation work. So my goal is to try and do half and half private clients and museums once I'm fully established. I think private clients, you end up doing a lot of bench work in private practice. Um, with textiles, there's quite a bit of mounting. Maybe no one has touched this object in a very long time. So you wanna spend a little more time vacuuming it than you might in a museum where it's going on exhibition and then off exhibition and either way it's going to be vacuumed twice or you have to deal with the tricky ethical considerations of someone wants you to treat something and they understand why you know what you're doing and why you're doing it and why they're spending so much money for a conservator to work on it and then they're going to wear it again so there there might be like some tricky ethical considerations in in private practice that you may not deal with in museums i just think that in private practice you have more control, more responsibility, and more risk. Another thing I just thought of when you were speaking is research too. Institutions and museums oftentimes have, if they're a larger museum, maybe they'll have a scientific lab and they can do technical analysis on their collection. Even if they don't have those resources, other sort of type of research projects that are funded as part of the museum. But if you're working in private practice, a lot of the times those opportunities aren't a guarantee. And if you want to do research like that, you have to kind of make that project yourself yep. or collaborate with other conservators and really make that opportunity available to you. And you hit my other 
things I wanted to compare, contrast, treatment goals, types of clients. Um, how about limitations? What limitations might be different between an institutional setting and a private practice setting? From my experience, in a museum, at some point, if you want to make more money, you have to put down the treatment. You end up in administrative roles. With private practice, this is not an issue. Um, the one with scientific research, it's been suggested to me there are instances where this isn't going to work, but to team up with a with university professors, you might be able to work with one to do like a science and art class, and then you can use hopefully some of their instrumentation and their brain. That's another way to, you know, yeah, you might not get paid for that right now, but there might be work in the future because of that. Absolutely. That's an excellent point. Currently, you're a fellow at the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is very exciting. Are you thinking of transitioning to a private business while you're working as a fellow after that fellowship? What sort of timeline are you thinking of? So apparently I can work on the side at the Costume Institute, but I'm not. I live in New York City. There's no space. I'm in a privileged position, but also a position that has a little stress in that my long-term committed relationship does not live in New York with me. We have a house in Michigan. So I will be beginning the LLC process in approximately six months as I prepare to transition back to Michigan. I've been making contacts whenever I can in the Midwest. So I've been working towards starting a private practice and will only be at the mat for a year. Now, I've listened to your uh, podcast, which is incredible, and uh, your first episode uh, with Lisa scared the bejesus out of me because I am so confident about my desire to work in private practice, I forgot about some of the nitty gritties, such as I won't make money for two years. I'm saving money. I've been saving money to, to start my private practice, but I will be relying on my partner's ability to pay our mortgage and pay for our food. For two years, private practice is expensive to start. If I were not in this scenario, I would probably get fellowships for a little while, scrounge and save as much money as possible because I really want private practice. Yeah, it was the, you won't make money for the first two years. Like, oh yeah, of course. Of course, what? Excuse me? I'm so glad I started with her too because she was so open and honest about her experience. Another nitty gritty question. You said that you've tracked your hours for a long time. You have an understanding of maybe how long something will take you. Do you know how much you would charge? And would you charge hourly by project? What's your thought on that? I get an object. I perform a treatment proposal. That would be a baseline $100 charge. No matter what time it took me, it was $100. Whether or not they decide to go with the treatment, it's $100, which would be taken out of the, the treatment if they decide to go with it. Then there's the actual treatment, which I would charge $100 per hour. I will be in the Midwest. I believe this is geographically important to think about, you know, cost of living, cost of overhead, those sorts of things. So for me, $100 uh, with the experience that I have and the way that I live seems right. I will charge more for larger objects, approximately 30% more um, because it takes longer to handle them. And also I will not give a range. If I have a range, I will only give the top number. If I do not reach that number and I charge the client less, they feel good about the fact that they said yes to a larger number than what I gave them. That doesn't mean that sometimes things won't come up that end up charging more. I also plan on creating treatment proposals when possible that have tiered amounts. 
So there is, you know, there's the baseline of what I will do ethically, which is documentation and vacuuming and whatever structural repairs. But if they want to do something more aesthetic than that, it will cost more. If they want to do mounting, it'll cost more. And I will allow the client to choose where they would like to stop based on the dollar amount. Then there are day rates. And day rates would be something that either I'm working with a collector that has a larger collection for me to do surveys with, or I'm working with a museum. And I haven't decided what that'll look like, but probably considering you know how much time I would be spending. I also would give day wages for travel, even if it took a little longer. They weren't paying me hourly. They were paying the, the baseline and that's it. I love your idea of the tiered system. I think that's so important, especially when potentially you're working with a client that has a yep. limited budget, right? Trying to prioritize what needs to happen, the most important things to an object. I think some people get sticker shock sometimes mm -hmm. by how much a whole treatment might cost. And so I think it's very important to work with your client and find something that works with their budget and is also ethical and good for the object. I love that idea. That's excellent. Also, I do want to say none of these things are fully mine. I fully have absorbed information over the last decade from private practice conservators. So none of these mm. are strictly my ideas. They're things that I heard of happening and, and, and I was like, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to take that. Which I think is how most people in private practice have learned these things, right? It seems like you learn from people in your network, people who have been successful in their practice, learning what didn't work for someone or, oh, that's a good idea. I'm totally stealing that, like you said. Exactly. Do you have an idea of where you might make space for your business? Yes. So um, in the house that my partner and I own currently, there is a room waiting for my practice. I need to convince my partner to make the room bigger and a better lab over a few years. We'll see how that turns out. It also means I can take an amount of space from our mortgage and write that off as a business expense. Even if I'm just doing computer work at my house, I can still write that off as a business expense because my office is in my house. Can you also talk a little bit about how you might modify that space to fit your needs if you were to perform textile conservation treatment? Absolutely. Um, so my experience in textile labs, there's a dry lab and a wet lab. So the upstairs room is a dry lab. This is where I'll have nice tables that hopefully will move up and down so they can be ergonomic. And this is where I will do vacuuming, stitch repairs, any compensation sort of things. I will probably do all dyeing in my kitchen. And then if I'm doing wet treatment, we live in the country, which means that I will have to buy all of the water because otherwise it is hard water. So I'll get giant jugs of clean, purified water, do all of the wet treatment, in what it will probably be a kiddie pool, either in the basement over a grate or outside, obviously being always aware of pests and what's happening. Now, that sounds a little like I put all those things together. I have created like mylar trays and done textile washing on the ground where there's a grate. People who have done rug treatments, they know that we have to create these scenarios. So it's not entirely unheard of as long as I can control the variables that go into interacting with the textile and can keep it safe. So these are the sort of things where I'm like, these are kind of easy to do in a private practice at home, as long as I can control these things. Absolutely. And what tools and equipment might you purchase to expand the services you could perform for clients? 
Obviously, ergonomic table and chair are very important for textiles. Textile conservation is bad for your back because we all have to like crouch over our work and we all have terrible backs. Those things will be very important for me to buy right off the bat. The other things, scissors, materials, those will come along the way as I, as I perform treatment. I would like to purchase at some point a polarizing light microscope, which is not something that most private practice textile conservators have. It is very expensive. I will probably have to write a grant or somehow team up with a scientist or somehow create a scenario in which I can afford a $10,000 machine. It also opens up the kind of job opportunities I can get if I can do fiber eye analysis and get very good at it. I think textile conservation is pretty inexpensive to establish, um, but you go any further than like basic treatment. If you want to do fiber eye analysis, that's basically impossible unless you decide to buy a PLM. And could you explain a little bit on PLM and the type of analysis for those who maybe aren't familiar? Thank you. Uh, so PLM, shortened polarizing light microscopy. So it's basically when you're in chemistry and you're looking under a microscope at tiny, tiny things, there is a way of looking at tiny things under a microscope where you play with the light. The way that the light interacts with it at a microscopic scale can tell you a lot about that material. This is also true with pigments. So in polarizing light microscopy, most of the time we're dealing with transmitted light. So the light is coming through the object and into your eyes. Uh, so you control the amount of light. There are filters that we can use to control specifically the way that the light comes back to us. And the way that we play with these can tell us certain things. So natural fibers are, are relatively easy to identify. But when you get to synthetics, which all kind of look like silk and they have these weird delestering agents. Synthetic fabrics are very, very complicated and you need all of these things in order to tell what that fiber is. And so it's, it's something that most textile conservators, even in small museums, don't have access to identify. And so if I have a polarizing light microscope, I am able to do identification for them. And that's another source of income. That touched on something that I wanted to bring back up, which is I wanted to get a little bit of your insight on the challenges of modern and contemporary art materials, especially in textiles, since it's something that you're interested in. So when I say modern materials, I have played with rubber and plastics and whatnot, but my real comfort is with synthetic fibers. And I love, love, love synthetic fibers. And so these are anything, basically 20th century fabrics. You have your nylon, you have your polyesters, um, your acetates, those sorts of things. Acetate really isn't a thing so much anymore, um, but really nylon and polyester. And the real trick with these is they get dirty and they also need to be washed differently than natural fibers. This is where dry cleaning comes in. The ability to use a solvent in order to remove an oily substance from a polyester garment is very important. However, dry cleaners don't have the same sort of need for preservation that we have. And they have incredible knowledge and we can work with them. However, we can't just give them a garment and have them dry clean it. There are very specific things that we have to go through. So in these ways, it's very complicated, but even more so it's very unknown. The conservation is a pretty new field. Like it's wildly unknown. 
I'm not sure I will be washing anything or, or wet cleaning. I should, I should be specific. Anything that is synthetic because number one, you need to be able to identify it. And if I do not have a polarizing light microscope, I cannot necessarily identify what kind of fabric it is. And then I'm not comfortable treating it because synthetics interact even with water very differently than the natural fibers. What I've been able to do is get comfortable with what I'm not comfortable with. So I know where to draw the line. All right. Next question. What ethics and values will be important to instill in your studio? Oh, such a good question. Something I want to establish and I haven't really thought through. And so I might change my mind, but I'm striving for. I will have pre-programmed interns. I will pay them and I will give them benefit. I don't know exactly how I'm going to do this yet, but I will do it. Now, it might be a situation where I work with a museum to to have a collection-based project and I write into the grant a position for a pre-programmed intern. Now, there are times when benefits just don't make sense. Um, In that case, I would like to have a monthly stipend on top of the hourly wage that will help go towards health insurance. Because there are just instances, if it's a temporary position, where it just doesn't work out. Again, I would like to strive towards, I offer benefits. That is what I want. However, I, I live in a system that maybe doesn't work for that. So I'm going to try and work my way around it as much as possible. I think in costume conservation and in garment conservation, ethics are really interesting. And I'm probably on the squishier side of the ethics where I, I sometimes view accessibility as more important than the long, long-term preservation. Now we have to remember that a lot of the times I'm dealing with modern materials that don't exist in 30 years. So I'll work towards documenting and making sure that as many stakeholders as I can get to have some sort of say in the significance of this object, those sorts of things. That brings to mind the Kim K. Marilyn Monroe dress controversy. I feel like that's a perfect example. Do you have a hot take? I will comment. um, I don't disagree with anyone. I see that this garment would not be talked about at all unless Kim Kardashian did what she did. I also see that Ripley's is not a museum and should not be held to the same. I don't want to use the word standards because that's that has a moral implication. I, I just think that that there's leeway there with the comparison. Damage was done. I don't love the idea of people wearing historic garments. However, my main issue is not at all with any of that, but with the fact that we have created a society in which people who have wealth have access to experiences that people who do not have wealth do not have. And that is what I would like to curb and continue to curb. If we are allowing someone, because they have money, to have an experience that is very risky and controversial, why have we allowed this? And again, I I don't put it on Ripley. I'm sure Ripley's got a lot of money out of that. I'm sure it went to something worthwhile and really important to their institution. It's really sticky. I have a problem with the larger fact that uh, in America, in the United States, we have created a necessity where museums rely so heavily on the giving of people who have wealth, who then have power over those institutions or over cultural heritage in general. I think that's really well said. I want to go back to your business, of course. What are other aspects of your business that you have conceptualized or you may be planning for that we didn't touch on? I plan on traveling to institutions and it might be a situation where I do a lot more work 
like that at the beginning before my lab's really established. I also plan on acquiring materials as I do treatment. I kind of plan on tracking how much each material costs and then creating a quantity and a price based on that quantity and putting that in the treatment proposal. So it won't just be my time that I'll be charging. If I'm using materials, which won't be a lot, I will put that in the proposal. I think that's so useful too. Like it's not only your time, it's also these materials, but I think it's an important aspect to budget for. Do you have advice for others considering starting a private practice? Think about every move that you make in conservation and how you can get something out of it that's private practice related. That doesn't necessarily mean you need to work with a private practice conservator. However, I would suggest that you do that. God, this is annoying. I can't believe I'm saying this, but network. Conservators are nice people to talk to. Like we really do deal with a lot of people. Networking and and being good with clients and those soft communication skills are are really helpful. Um, So any position that you can get better soft communication skills, like you were saying, it feels like sometimes the side gigs that you do, you end up getting skills that you didn't know would go towards conservation, end up going towards conservation. No, 100%. It's been so funny to see how these experiences where I was like, oh, I'm never going to get anything out of this other than like, you know, a living wage actually ended up being very useful in conservation. And I think what you said too about networking, you know, sometimes it felt uncomfortable to network because it feels very icky and like very impersonal and Mm. almost like manipulative. And that's not how I wanted to have relationships, but it is so important. And I think when people say, networking, it's not necessarily, oh, this person has X, I'm going to try to be friends with them so I can achieve X, right? It's just being a nice person, helping someone if you see they need help, sharing resources, having like a mutually beneficial relationship. That's been actually one of the things I really love about conservation. Like you said, conservators are very nice and they will talk to you and you will, if you try, I think, have wonderful relationships in the field. And that's been one of the great benefits. And I think because it is such a small field, it is such an important factor. You put that so nicely. You made me feel better about networking. Yeah, you're right. It's also like, I've never had a bad experience with a conservator. They've always been very friendly, willing to share their experiences, what they've learned, mistakes that they've made, even in things they wouldn't recommend. So I think if you are genuine, you can't go wrong. It's very rewarding. I feel exactly the same. I have never had a bad interaction with the conservator. We're all kind of willing to put our laundry out on the line. And I find that comforting. I agree. I have one more question for you, which is, and you've touched, I mean, you've done a great job of like including tips and advice you've gotten from your other mentors. What is some of the best advice you've received from your mentors or other professionals? I mean, there's small things like Mandy Holden at the Indianapolis Museum of Art suggesting that I track all of my hours very diligently and and helping me figure out how I would like to do that and taking time for that. Or another Mandy Holden, the interpersonal communication that she has with her workers or with her fellow is important. She'll end up spending more time in the day so that she can get that stuff done. She always had time for me and the people that she worked with. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to talk with me. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I'm so happy you're making this podcast. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening. For more information on the podcast, please visit theprivateproject.com. On the website, you can view a complete episode list, submit your feedback, and donate to support the project. All donations go directly to the interviewees, who take time out of their busy schedules to talk to me. This also incentivizes those not in my network to be interviewed and allows me to bring more diverse content to you. Thank you for your support.